Bible study this Tuesday evening, we're turning together to the Old Testament major prophecy of Isaiah and the sixth chapter. I want to look with you at the first eight verses of that chapter as well. Text the Bible study is Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 8. And first of all, I just would like to read to you the first verse of that chapter. We're told there that in the year that King Uzziah died, I, the reference there to the prophet Isaiah himself, saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Now, the prophet Isaiah here in this, what is now the sixth chapter of his major prophecy, his first eight verses, is writing, well, he's writing about that is, he's writing about the king that recently died, Isaiah, he's writing also about the Lord himself. But also we find him writing some personal things about himself, about the prophet Isaiah. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I, as Isaiah, this is something that he experienced. He telling us here about things that he saw as part of his vision that God gave him as part of his prophetic call, the things that he felt as the result and some of the things that he said. I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. I want us to look and a few things this evening concerning Isaiah and this vision that he received. Before we do that, I'd like to say a few things about Isaiah himself. And first of all, first off, just his name. You know what Isaiah's name means? It's a lovely name with a lovely meaning. A lot of the, a lot of the names in the Bible mean something. They have significance, they have meaning. And Isaiah means Yah is helper. Yah was and is, of course, one of the names of God, one of the names of the Lord. And he certainly was the helper of the prophet Isaiah throughout his life and throughout his ministry. Isaiah had an unpopular message to preach to a people who, very many of them, didn't want to hear it. But the Lord helped him and help the other Old Testament prophets, help the New Testament apostles. Indeed, he's a God who helps all of his people. Just remember that this evening. The Lord is our helper, not only Isaiah's helper as an individual, but he's the helper of all of his people and all of his servants. The Lord is my helper. I'll be afraid what men may do unto me. Isaiah, he was the son of Amoz, Amos. Nothing else is known about Amos apart from his name and the fact that he was the prophet Isaiah's father. Not to be confused with the minor prophet Amos. The duration of the prophetic ministry of Isaiah may have been about 60 years. In fact, some estimate it as being 60 years plus. That's between the years 759 and 690 BC. But the one thing I want to draw out from this passage here this evening is this, that Isaiah was a great example, a godly example, of one of the Lord's 
certainly converted. He was a born-again man, converted person. But also, being converted, he was also a thoroughly committed, consecrated, and willing person, an Old Testament prophet and servant of God. And I think, apart from other things in his life which he experienced, I think Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, shows us why. He's already converted by this time, of course, but uh, what he sees here in this vision in the temple in Jerusalem, you know, it gives us an understanding and insight of why he was such a committed and consecrated and willing servant of God. So that's a little bit about Isaiah, his name, and his father, and what I want us to see concerning him. We know a little bit more about him at the beginning of the prophecy, back in chapter 1 and verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. There it is, his father, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah, before Isaiah died. Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And in the beginning of chapter 2, we have the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. A little bit about Isaiah there. Well, the question this evening is, although, you know, we're not in Old Testament days, we're not in Jerusalem or Judah, we're not prophets or apostles, they're long gone now, we can still be like Isaiah this evening. We can still be an example, an outstanding example, trophy of grace, if you like, of one of the Lord's converted, committed, consecrated, and willing people or servants, just like he was. It was, of course, Queen Elizabeth II's funeral yesterday. And what do you think about her? We trust, you know, if we think the best of her, we trust that she was somebody who was converted and had a confession or a profession of faith. She certainly was somebody who was committed, a committed servant to her people, and we trust also to God. But we must make sure that we are too. You must make sure here in Tiverton that you fit the bill here. You like Isaiah and all like him. Truly committed believers say today a committed Christian. Well let's look at this passage to that end. First of all I want us to have a look at the sights that he saw in this vision that God gave him in the temple in Jerusalem, as I say, as part of his prophetic calling, verses 1 to 4. And I want us to consider some of the feelings that he felt as a result of seeing these amazing and wonderful things concerning God, concerning the Lord, perhaps seeing something of the glory of the pre-incarnate Christ. I think for John chapter 12, a verse, verse there, that Isaiah saw something of Christ's glory. Surely it's here, he's seen something of the pre-incarnate glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly and finally, some of the statements that he shares with us that come out of this in verse 8. So let's look first of all at some of the sights that he saw, spiritual sights that he saw, verses 1 to 4. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also, so you probably witnessed the death of the king, but in the same year, 
He witnesses the Lord, God opens his eyes, the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. His train or his robe filled the temple, the temple in Jerusalem. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another, said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of Christ. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Did you notice from those first four verses of Isaiah chapter 6 that Isaiah saw at least three things about God, about the Lord, about the pre-incarnate Christ. The first is this. I take this from verse 1. That he saw the sight of the Lord's highness. And so high, there was no higher. He saw the most high God. And if Jehovah is the most high God, there is none higher. And there's none either side of him. All are underneath him. And beneath this, this one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-eternal, co-equal. He sees the sight of the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. He saw something as God revealed this to him, gave a glimpse of these things, of the exaltation, glory, highness, lordship, majesty, sovereignty, supremacy, or transcendence of the Lord. I love that word, transcendence. His transcendence is being over all, is being over everything. So although the earthly king of Jerusalem and Judah, King Uzziah, had died earlier that year, having reigned for about 50 years, 20 less than Queen Elizabeth II, Isaiah saw the sight that the heavenly Lord of glory still reigned, king over all, which must have come as a great comfort to him at that time. He saw something of the highness of the eternal God. This eternal, everlasting God, this immortal God, who never comes, and comes, and, uh, comes away from his throne, is always, as it were, seated upon his throne, always reigning, always ruling. It's not as though somebody puts him there and then puts him down, just like earthly kings, or queens, or prime ministers, or presidents, they come and go. No, God remains the same, immutable, ruling over all heaven and earth. So he sees something of the glory of God. And it has this profound impact and influence upon the rest of his life and ministry. It would be something he never forgot. And whenever we meet with God, we never forget it. When he meets with us. When everything might have seemed to be out of control with the death of King Uzziah, he saw the sight of the Lord who was in complete control of everything, in charge of all. What might have been a great tragedy for him, the death of the king, preceded and perhaps prepared him one of the greatest things that could have ever happened in his life. Seeing the Lord. And the Lord visiting him in this way. He saw the sight of who was in complete control of all things throughout the whole 
universe. What an honor was given to this man. What a privilege was given to this man to see God in this way, to see something of the glory and the highness of God and his sovereignty over all. And this was God's goodness to him. And preceding all the sufferings that he was going to go through, he was going to carry him through all the sufferings. But often does this. He blesses us before the battles. Sometimes he blesses after the battles. God was blessing Isaiah before the battles of being an Old Testament prophet. So he saw God's highness, verse 1, verses 2 and 3. He saw something of the holiness of God. He sees a certain kind of angel called seraphims, the seraphims, standing above the throne. That doesn't mean to say that they are above God. It doesn't mean that. Just that this is how he sees them. All are under God, the angels included, even the seraphims. They had six wings. They covered their faces and their feet with two pairs of them. They flew with a third pair. Why are they covering their eyes? Their faces. Why are they covering their feet? Because they're in the presence of God. Even these holy angels are awestruck by the holiness the infinite holiness of God. And they're very careful to honour His holiness. They cry to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. They cry to each other the thrice holy nature of His person or personality. They declare to each other either that each of the three persons of His Godhead or Holy Trinity were holy, the Father being holy, the Son being holy, the Spirit being holy, or that God's holiness was such it was as it were triple in degree. God was so holy, so pure, so righteous, so just, so sinless. And they proclaimed to each other also his glory. Isaiah saw that although Isaiah had been a good king over Judah and Jerusalem, and had done that which was right in the sight of God, although he didn't have such a good end, did he? But on the whole, at least initially, he was a decent king, did that which was right in the sight of God. But in spite of that, it's only the Lord who truly deserved all the glory for everything. And Isaiah's duty before the Lord, both as one of his people, spiritual people and prophets and servants, was to honour his holy nature also by living a holy life before him to his glory. He is also to recognise the right of God to all the glory by giving him all of it for everything in his life and ministry and not rob God of one iota of his glory. The Lord and he alone deserve to be glorified and honoured and he at this time was working everything out to his glory, honour and praise. So he sees the highness of God, he sees the sheer holiness of God, and also he sees how imminent, how close, how near, how, how approximate God was to him in verse 4, his nearness. He sees the sight that the house or temple of God was filled with smoke and with his train or robe. And these are both symbols of the presence of God. He was the central figure in his house or temple. God was central. Christ was central. And you and I 
We must seek in our thinking, in our Christian lives, and in our ministry, and in our prayers as well, to seek to be as Christocentric as possible. Keep Christ central, preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He saw that although Zion was no longer present amongst his people, he's gone just like our queen is gone. She's been taken into eternity, whichever eternity that was. But God still is, isn't he? Still amongst his church, still amongst his people. And Isaiah sees this, which again must have been a great source of comfort and consolation and solace to him. He and his people had neither been forsaken or left by the Lord, because he's still with them in great glory. As a saved man, Isaiah was never alone. Even in that time of bereavement, grief, loss, mourning and sorrow, he still had the presence of God with him at all times. Remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said? It's part of the Great Commission. At the end of Matthew chapter 28, he says to them, and he says to all of his disciples, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. He will never leave nor forsake you. Hebrews 13 and verse 5. He said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. As the hymn writer puts it, he will never, no, never, no, never forsake us. Mm-hmm. And if you listen to the devil, he said, the Lord's forsaken you and left you. But he's no longer with you. It's not true. If you're a Christian, mm-hmm. he's always with you, whether you think it or feel it or not. But if you like that Isaiah also experienced something of these things. The Christian faith, something must not have been known, but also felt. We want experience, don't we? We want to see God beyond the sacred page. We want to know God. It's the people who know God are the strong that are exploits. And we want to know something in our experience of God's transcendence, how high he is, and how small we are. And his presence, as it were, crushing us. The crushing presence of God. We want to know something of the holiness of God. And how near he is. Nearer, as one once put it in his prayer, nearer than our very hands and feet, closer than the breath we breathe. God can be very close in us by his spirit. We can know the presence of God. But my shifty friend this evening, your brother or sister in Christ, if you have read these things and believed these things in your heart, and if God by His Spirit has granted you something of an experience of these things, surely you're going to be also one of the Lord's committed, consecrated, and willing people or servants like Isaiah this evening. And if not, ask Him, Lord, in your mercy, either in you know, one of your private times at home, when the means of grace in the church or appointed times of Bible study and prayer on the Lord's day. Ask him, Lord, come down to us. Come down to us as a local church, as a local fellowship. Come and visit this corner of your vineyard. Come and come to us. That we might experience something what Isaiah experienced. We can, you know. We can. Because the Spirit is the same. And the Word is that God's Word is powerful. And he can bring these things home to us. God can draw near and pour out his spirit upon us. And he can help us not only to have an insight, but experience of these things. We can taste of these things ourselves and be changed forever.
Well, secondly here, in the light of verses 5 to 7, we only have the things that he saw, but having seen these things, and seen these things clearly, and he's never going to forget them, they're going to be, they're going to be, as it were, etched upon his mind and upon his heart and soul forever. We now have some of the things that he felt. We now go from his eyes to his heart and to his affections. And he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then flew one of the seraphims to me, having a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips. And then iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. So do you notice what happens when he meets with God, when God meets with him? Do you notice what doesn't happen? You know, he doesn't, you know, he's not kind of filled with himself, his own self-importance. He doesn't kind of puff him up in pride. He, he doesn't start kind of dancing around or anything like that. No, Isaiah is very deeply humbled under the mighty hand of God. A crushing sense of the presence of God. And because he's in the, in the presence of such a high God and a holy God and such a close God, he feels deeply his own spiritual uncleanness, no doubt, like he'd never felt it before. Mm-hmm. When he's seen these sights, he says, Well, miss me, I'm undone. A man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King. The Lord of hosts. It wasn't just that he seen an angel, possibly like, like Samson's parents, and they worried that they were not going to live as a result of that. He's seen the king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord of hosts. And when he sees these things, he immediately feels his own spiritual uncleanness, like Job. Job suddenly is vile. Daniel, his covenant suddenly turns to corruption. When he meets with God, in even godly Isaiah, he feels his own uncleanness. It's what happens to him when he saw the Lord, and he's in his presence. Seeing the sight of God as he was revealed the iniquity, sin, uncleanness, or unholiness in his own life and ministry, especially his lips, his mouth, his tongue, even Isaiah. You see him coming to the presence of God, the God who created the Son. The very light itself, the natural light. And my dear friend, when you bring something, when you're in the dark, you don't see dirt, you don't see filth and defilement, do you? But when it's when it's exposed to the light, you see the filthiness, the dirtiness. And this is the thing with God. When you come into the presence of God, you see your own uncleanness, your sin, your iniquity, your transgression, like you've never seen it before. That can actually be a comfort to you. You might be feeling very sinful, but that can actually be a good sign. Because God is near and you're seeing yourself as you truly are before Him. He might have thought that everything was relatively right spiritually in his life until he saw this sight of God. And just some just a little of his glory and holiness. He might have thought he was quite spiritually healthy and sound. Now he sees his ill health. And the trouble is with a lot of us these days, we're like Dr. Michael Jones once said, we're altogether too healthy. 
but that is, we're not. <laughs> you know, it's, it is those that feel and see their sin and are repenting. That's the healthy soul. That's the healthy Christian. Mm. You know, the Christian who's not confessing every day and repenting. Mm. So that's not a good sign. Mm. So when he sees these things, he's suddenly made away of all his spiritual uncleanness. Even what he thought, have thought was his comeliness is immediately turned into corruption, as was in the case in Daniel. When he comes face to face with the Lord, sees him, and is confronted with his own spiritual condition before him, he was deeply humbled and led to confess his spiritual uncleanness and that of his people. That's how you know you've met with God. You see your sin and you're humbled under his mighty hand. So you know it's genuine and real and authentic. Then he doesn't cry, Woe is my neighbour. He says, Woe is me. Because God's dealing with him. He confessed his own spiritual unclean condition to the, to the Lord when he saw his own spiritual failure and need for spiritual cleansing. So he feels his uncleanness. But secondly, in verses 6 and 7, before we come to our final verse, verse 8, he also feels his own cleansing, his spiritual cleansing or purging. He sees one of the seraphims fly to him, having a live coal in his hand, He's taken it with the tongs from off the altar. He lays it on his mouth and says, Lo, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, your sin is purged. So God doesn't just show him his own spiritual iniquity, sin and uncleanness. He also provides him a means for his spiritual cleansing, because God is good, God is kind, God is loving, God is gracious, God is merciful. He doesn't just show him his vileness. He shows him how he can be cleansed and washed and purged. With him, one of the seraphim, with a live coal from off the altar, for us it is the blood of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, shed from off that altar, shed at that altar, the altar of Calvary all those years ago, and applied to us by the work of the Holy Spirit. That blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So he sees himself as he is, and he comes humbly before God, confesses his uncleanness. The closer he got to God, the holier God appeared, and the more unclean he appeared. But when he repented and confessed before God, he experiences the purging of his sin, the taking away of his iniquity, and then he's able to stand in the presence of God able to stand and worship God and offer himself uh, as being available and willing to serve him all of his days. So that's what he felt. Sees these three things, feels these two things, uncleanness and then his cleansing. What does the Apostle John say? 1 John 1 verses 7 to 9. He says this, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin, from all our sins, past, present, and future, and it continues to cleanse us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, 
God is faithful and just. You do what he says you do. To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Oh my dear friend, are you a committed, consecrated and willing servant of God? Well, surely you are. Surely you must be. It has to be the case. If you've seen something of God, and also if you've seen something of your condition by nature, in your fallen state of condition, your depravity, the death that's coming, hell coming, and yet God's goodness and grace towards you, and not only accomplishing redemption through His Son upon the cross of Calvary, but applying His redemption to you, and you're seeing only your sinfulness, but your Saviour, and being made right with God through the precious and powerful work of, of God, the, God the Son. And it's all applied to you by the Holy Spirit. My dear friends, if you've seen and felt how much you've been forgiven, that you've been forgiven much, you're going to love much, and therefore you're going to serve much, and you're going to be prepared to suffer much as well. So if you felt these things, if so, surely, again, you're going to be like Isaiah. And thirdly and finally, is the last verse, verse 8, it says that also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then said I, like Abram said the same kind of thing, when God says, well, you know, where are you? Abram, Abram says, here am I. And so I said, here am I. Then my Lord send me. Notice two things here. First of all, Isaiah tells the Lord, in the light of what he's seen, and in the light of also the context of what he's felt, what he says that he is available. Here I am. As soon as his iniquity is taken away, his sin purged, he sees how much he's been loved and how much he's been forgiven and pardoned and absolved from. He hears the voice that are calling him to commit his service. Who shall I send? Who will go for us? Us, plural, Father, Son, and Spirit. When he says to the Lord, here am I, he's saying that he was available, ready, willing to serve him in a committed way. If he could have demonstrated it, he'd have put his hand up, wouldn't he? I'm here, Lord. I'm here, and I'll do whatever you want me to do. He was signifying to the Lord that uh, the death of King Uzziah was now in the past, and as far as the present and the future is concerned, his life is now on the altar of committed service, which was his reasonable service, to God in his glory. And for the good of others too, even his own people who are so unworthy. He places himself on the altar of God's committed service and came to the place where nothing but anything to him anymore but what God wanted from him. He subjected, submitted, or surrendered himself completely to God and to his will and way for his life. As a servant and as a prophet, he's available. But you notice also, he's not only available, he's also willing. God made him willing. His power has made him agreeable. He says he's willing to do so. He says, send me. 
And you notice he doesn't know yet when he's going. He doesn't know, he doesn't know yet where he's going or who he's going to. He could probably guess where he's going. But don't forget, God sent Jonah to another country and to a Gentile people. Isaiah doesn't know, but you see, because he's seen these things and felt these things, and he's prepared to do, do anything for the Lord. Anywhere, anytime, to anybody. That's what happens when God meets with us. He makes us willing in the day of his power. It's very difficult these days, you know, because people aren't very committed. You know, and just, you know, sometimes preachers can kind of get on to people. Preachers shouldn't rail people to kind of, you know, make them to do this and that. Can ask them to do things, encourage them, exhort them to do things. But you know, when God's people are really happy to do things, when God meets with them, and then it's all willing, you see. And everybody's constrained by love, by love towards God, because God loves these things. They see how much He loves them. And the love of Christ constrains them. You see the love of Calvary. That opens their hearts. Prepare to do anything for him. Always think of the experience of Hal Harris in the tower of Telgarth Church. Shortly after he was converted, God came to him in such a way. He said, Lord, you know, I'll be prepared to go through fire and through water for you, through the floods, through the fires. You know, I'll go through anything for you. And he did. What a wonderful event, Welsh evangelist he was during the 18th century evangelical awakening in our country. And that's what God can do. He can do it to you and to me as well. So he's gone any time, anywhere, to anybody. He wasn't in effect saying, Lord, I'm not only now here to do whatever you want me to do. I'm willing to do it. Send me. And let me now go and do whatever you want me to do. He was putty now in God's hands, wasn't he? He was malleable. He was melted. Happy to do whatever God wanted him to do, however hard, whatever the suffering involved. So he makes himself available to God, but he's also willing to go and do whatever he wanted him to do. A man called Henry Varley once said to D.L. Moody, he was an evangelist, I'm not going to quote him, he said to him, The world needs to see again what the Lord can do with and for and through and in a man and a woman who is fully and wholly committed or consecrated to him and all that we might see such days again in our day. Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2, I beseech you, pleading with them, begging them, but you see when this happens, you don't have to, it's all willing. Brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies, a living sacrifice, Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Nothing more than, you know, should be the case. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What did Hudson Taylor say? I think it was Hudson Taylor. If Christ be God and died for me, there's nothing too great that God can ask of me. Mm -hmm. Remember that picture that Sinsendorf, that your Sinsendorf saw? Of the crucified Christ, whatever you might think of that, and the and the words, "This have I done for you." What have you done for me? We've done very little, but we can do more as God helps us to love Him more and to serve Him better. So finally, when you like Isaiah, tell the Lord in your heart, 
you're available here in Tiverton and in this local church, available and agreeable to serve him in a committed, consecrated, but don't forget, and a willing way. It will Paul said, we don't do things willingly, we're going to lose our reward. It has to be willing. If you will, you'll be like one of the Lord's committed willing people or servants like Isaiah this evening. And what a, a lovely class of people and category to be in. The Lord's people. So Isaiah, the sights he saw of God's highness, holiness and nearness. The feelings that he felt in his affections. With his own spiritual uncleanness first. And then his cleansing. And then the things he shared openly publicly, verbally, to God was that he was available to him and agreeable to and all that we might be just like Isaiah and all the, God, the Lord's committed people. You know, don't worry about anybody else. Think about yourself tonight. Who then, think of that question, who then is willing to consecrate his service this day, this night, to the Lord? I'm happy to say, me, Lord. You, know, you use me in not just big things in the future, little things now. Serving the Lord, serving the Lord's people, but for His glory.